Job 31 is where we turn this morning and continue our discussion or uh, review of Job's final words. We've been studying through the gospel according to Job for some weeks now, and Job has given us much to think about, much to uh, kind of take a step back from in his, in, his, um, in his words. In Job 31, he wraps up his statements, and he is uh, filling out or fulfilling his desire for God to, st- to answer him, to stand before him and, and tell him, what in the world has he done that has warranted such opposition from God? You remember the, op- the thinking, the philosophy, the worldview that his friends came from, which Job has shared to a certain degree and maybe shares it to some degree as he, as he presents his case here in chapter 31, is that suffering follows sin. Job is greatly suffering, and so it must be that Job is a great sinner. He is just a notorious sinner. He's done so much evil, his friends have accused him of, that certainly that's why God has, has judged him, brought his judgment upon him. And they say, well, you just need to return to the Lord. You need to have it be a pious person, and you'll be blessed. Blessing follows piety, and you can have that assurance. Job wants nothing to do with that. He says, I haven't done anything wrong. And we know he hasn't done anything wrong either because we read the beginning of the book, right? That Job is a blameless, upright fellow, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's That's who Job is, and that's what God even endorsed him to be. Well, and we know all these things have happened in part because of Satan's accusation against God. It's not so much against Job, it's against God, that somehow God is, is, is worth less. Instead of worth, he's worthy of worship, worship, he's worthy of praise and adoration just in himself. No, God, you aren't really worth it all. But what you give to people, that's what really animates them or motivates them to fear you, to walk in your path. And, and as long as you keep the gifts coming, then that's as long as people will continue to follow you. But turn off the spigot, take the hedge around Job away, and he will curse you to your face. And so he says, the only reason that the that Job specifically is pious is because you have blessed him. I mean, he, he's not wearing socks anymore, right? He's working sandals. Well, okay. You know, he blessed his socks off. Piety follows blessing, but also sin, you bring suffering upon Job, he will curse you, he will sin against you, and he'll do it so quickly you, you'll just be ashamed of him. And so that's the accusation, the inversion of Satan's Satan's an inversion of what the friends believe about the relationship of piety and suffering and or pi- the other sin and suffering, piety and blessing that, that are all in that mix. Well, there's another formula or another element that they have forgotten about, and that is God's doing things that we may not understand. God is always good. We belong to him, and whatever he does is right and proper. And that's what Job said at the beginning, right? The Lord Yahweh is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Uh, and then even, shall we accept only the good times from God and not accept adversity? And so his, his attitude, his perspective, his worship of God was regardless of the gifts. And that's established from the very first two chapters of the whole book. So we realize, what's going on here? This isn't just about Job. This isn't just about the friends coming. This is about something bigger, and it's about God himself and who is God, and is he really worthy of worship, and, and what is he like, and how, how is he different to us? How is he God, and, and we're not him? In fact, if you don't mind, one of the fundamental rules of theology is, and there's two of them, is there is a God, you're not him. There's a God, you're not him. But so much of our attitude is, well, God, why didn't you do it this way? 
God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why did you take this from me? Why did you make this person suffer? Why We have a better plan than you do, God. If you just listened to us before you took action, things would have been a whole lot better. Isn't that what we think a lot of times? At least we have some friends. Don't look around each other. But we have some, a lot of people think that way. They find fault with God. And that's one of the phrases that God himself will use when he speaks, not in this chapter, in the next few chapters, but in chapter 41 is where he asks the question or makes the statement, where is this fault finder? Why does he contend with the Almighty? Wait a minute. Job is contending with the Almighty God, questioning God's wisdom, questioning God's power, questioning God's attention. Well, that's what's been going on. And the friends have an attitude toward this. Job has had an attitude to this. And at this point, Job is saying, look, I wish, I yearn for those times when I had that intimate fellowship with God. It wasn't just this prosperous past of all the stuff that he had around him back in chapter 29, which we looked at a few weeks ago. He recounted all the blessings. And and he started, though, with and and really carried throughout the whole um, narrative or whole uh, speech that he had was the relationship he had with God and how intimate and how close that that was. He didn't have to go to some other place. God met him right in his tent and they had fellowship together. And Job used that blessing from God to bless other people with with being generous with his material goods, being uh, just in the gate, you know, exercising justice, uh, pleading for the widow, the orphan, those who were sojourning, you know, the travelers through. He was just he he knew he had a relationship with God and used that as a launching pad to serve other people. And he says that was so great, and I was so grateful to to do that. But then, chapter thirty. This horrible situation happened. The people that he was so interested in helping and serving from old to young, people near to him, you know, um, in the community and those who were outside the community, they all curse him now. They all mock him. They scorn him. They say, oh, who is this Job guy? And, and what has he done that's so evil that God has just you know, unleashed his fury against him? He laments the present disgrace. And, and OK, not even the loss of his stuff. Forget about the stuff. It's the relationship that he had with God that is now ruined, and people accuse him, oh, the one who claimed he was with God, now God has turned on him. And and Job says, yeah, he has turned on me. Why has he turned on me? I had that relationship with him. And so now in, in chapter 31, he says, you know, I don't deserve this. Again, really characterized or, or contained in that, that uh, retribution principle that we've been talking about, sin, follow, suffering, and so forth that he says, I don't deserve this. I've done nothing that would warrant such a egregious, such a, a magnificent uh, opposition from God in this way. Now, lest we think, again, that Job is being a self-righteous person and saying things that he should not be speaking, we have this endorsement, again, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse whatever it is, when God himself says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And he says the same thing in chapter 2, and even says he still holds fast his integrity, which is a good thing. God was endorsing Job. We also read in verse 5 of chapter 1 that Job was very concerned for the purity, for the righteous standing before the Lord of his children. Remember when they got together and had parties, and, and after the party, which they did often, because Job had seven sons and three daughters, and they got together often, that Job would, on that following morning, first thing, early in the morning, would rise up, hey guys, come together, girls, come together, we're going to offer sacrifices to God to cover, just in case one or two or some of you have cursed God in your hearts. Job was so sensitive toward the sins, even in just a heart sin, not even practical 
you know, active doing it so people can see, but even the thoughts of the heart that only God knows. Job was concerned about that for his loved ones. And so we know that when he had sins and issues, transgressions, rebellion, whatever kind of thing in his own life, that he came to God in humility, repentance, faith, but in a sacrifice. We'll see his sacrifice return in chapter 42. But here he he says, look, I don't deserve this. I've done nothing uh, that I haven't confessed before. I've done nothing of these, this list of 14, 15 sins he's going to talk about here in chapter 31. And he's just, I don't understand. Where, where's God? He has withdrawn himself from me. I don't understand why this is going on. Help me to understand, but even more specifically, vindicate me. I don't deserve this. Other people are getting a wrong idea of me and my relationship with God. They're getting even a wrong understanding of God that he is unjust, that he allows wicked people to prosper and the, and the righteous suffer. And, and it's just up here. And Job is, is concerned about God's honor to some degree, also concerned about his own honor. And so there's a little bit of, of again, as God says, who is this who is fault finder who contends with the Almighty? What are you doing finding fault with my ordering of the whole universe? And you'll notice, if you haven't read ahead already, chapters 38 to 41, that God doesn't answer. God doesn't say, hey, Job, you really are a righteous fellow. I like you a lot. And you're right. You've, you've had a bum deal about this whole thing. And you, you deserve a whole lot better. He doesn't answer anything like that. What does he answer? That God knows everything. That he can do everything. God answers with his omniscience and his omnipotence. And that is enough for Job to rest. Okay, God knows what he's doing, and he's able to do it. And so I can rest in him. And I repent all the, all the contention, all the fault-finding I presented to God. Forget about it. I don't want that anymore. I want the relationship with God. Um, I want to know God. And, and even Job says, I, I heard about you before, but now I see you. And that changed everything. And so God did answer, but not the questions, not... I mean, can we allow those first two rules of theology, there's a God and you're not him, can we allow those to govern our lives, that we don't find fault with God and say, God, you should have done this, really. It wasn't nice of you. Is God nice? No, he's good. And you don't mind the little allusion, the little homage to C.S. Lewis and, and Aslan, the lion, who's a Christ figure. He's not a tame lion, right? But he is good. He's a good lion. Christ is the lion to the tribe of Judah. He is good, very good. Well, as we saw last week, just the first four verses of chapter 31, the first sin that Job disavowed, he says, has nothing to do in my life, is that sin of lust and of uh, unnatural or un, ungodly desire toward, especially as he said, toward a virgin. And we looked at that very carefully last week. I just want to review that this, the pattern that, that each of these different disavowals, which wasn't just, I didn't do that, but I never did that. That's nothing a part of me. I, I cursed that. I renounced that. So it's not just Job is saying, I didn't do those things. There's no way I did those things and let judgment of God come upon me if I have. So it's a very serious, very, very somber, sober, solemn, that's the word I'm trying to get to, that, that Job is saying about these things. And sometimes there are these four different categories or four different aspects of his statement. There's always the sin that he's omitted or not, he, hasn't, he has avoided it. If I have ever done this, and he says it in the negative, and, and you know, he, the assumption is he's never done it. He has never done these things. Sometimes he lists an appropriate punishment. If I have done this, then let this happen to me as a natural consequence. Because, and he gives sometimes the judgment for, the justification for the judgment for this is a horrible sin, etc. And then he, 
he says, well, I haven't done it, but I've never done this. I've always done the opposite and so forth. So as we go forward, and we'll uh, skip through or, or progress through these very carefully, but also very uh, speedily as we pick up our um, disavowal of Job. We looked last time again at last in verse, verses 1 through 4. In verses 5 and uh, 6, he talks about deceit, that he has not been a, a deceitful person. How does it say here? If I have walked with worthlessness and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with just scales and let God know my integrity. He talks about these things. Again, these are things that he hadn't done. In verse 5, he talks about this idea of uh, worthlessness, uh, which has the idea of falsehood or deception or just, uh, just futility, just walking in a way that is not honoring to other people. It could be that he has uttered blasphemy in the, in, against God or against others. He's provided false testimony to other people. He has lied. Maybe he's, he's said things falsely. He says, I've never done that. If I have walked in that way and my foot has hastened after deceit, which is to say, well, how do you hasten after deceit? Just the, the activities that he did, trying to cover his, his footprints, cover his tracks, that he, he says, no, nothing of that sort has, has been part of my life. He says, if it has, then let God weigh me down, or excuse me, weigh me with just scales. Again, those, the scales of justice, not the bathroom scales, but the, the scales where you put something over here and something over here and you have to balance it to see what it's like. Job says, let him weigh me with just scales and let God know my integrity. Do you remember I mentioned last time about he started with the, the sin of lust, not because that was necessarily his most besetting sin, if you don't mind, the sin that so easily entangled him, but because it evidenced his desire for purity of heart. Not just external, what people can see, but in his heart. He says, from my heart, from my the thing, the, the thoughts, intentions of my heart is toward God. And how could I how could I disregard and dishonor my God in that way? Here he talks about as it pertains toward other people, worthlessness and deceit to other people and to God, trying to hide things from God. Let God know my integrity. Let God judge me righteously and, and justly. And then he will prove that I am a blameless person. This idea of integrity is is same root idea of what we read back in chapter 1, verse 1, that he's blameless. And he is, what you see on the outside is also who he is on the inside. He is a man of, of consistency and continue continuous character and you know wherever you put him whatever situation of life he's in he's the same person he's he's Job he's our beloved Job and he says here that God is the one who can know my integrity because that's other people already know they know they assume they have interpreted the facts oh Job is a great sinner because of all his suffering and Job says no God is the one who's, who knows he guards he knows all my steps you look back at verse 4 does he not see my ways and number all my steps so he says, God is the one who has to uh, prove me. Also note this. These are just scales. See, the, Job does not want to be compared with other people. He wants to be compared with God's justice. He, he wants his righteousness to be not, to not, not to be subjective, relative. You know, I think I'm a good person. What do you think? How, how, how good of a person do you think? Or I'm at least better than that person. Nothing like that. Let me compare myself to God's standard of righteousness, truthfulness, uh, of speaking what is right and, and pure, and, and I will uh, be proven uh, to be a man of integrity. So he disavows deceit, says that has nothing to do with me. In verses 7 and 8, he talks about covetousness or desire of other people's stuff. 
If my step has turned away from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. So what's he? He's, he's directing his steps somewhere different than where he should be. His heart has followed his eyes, which kind of reminds us of verse 1. I have cut a covenant with my eyes. How then I could I gaze at a virgin? Here he says, I carefully monitor what my eyes look at and even more closely monitor what my heart meditates on and thinks about. I don't let my heart follow my eyes. I don't have that desire for more. I haven't done these things, he says. I don't have a mind or a philosophy of life that's controlled by my lust. I put my, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I buffet my body and make it my slave so that I would not be disqualified. He's very careful to discipline himself because he knows okay, it's not that he, he's not liable or it's not possible for him to sin, to sin, but he has put so many shields, guards, protections on his life that he would always honor God, always have that desire to, to uh, keep God's word. Psalm 119 and verse 67 helps us understand. 19 verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. This is a, a statement again. Why, why does affliction happen? This is what Elihu is going to help us understand. Because I was going astray. Now, Job wasn't, but Elihu helps us understand sometimes God brings suffering in our lives to keep us on the right way. Not because we're in the wrong way, but to, to keep us, to, to show us, to help us to remind us what is important, and that we live for God's glory, not for our own satisfaction, our own you know, human satisfaction, temporal satisfaction. We want to be satisfied with God and his righteousness and his truth. And so affliction helps us to really clarify the senses, clarify the, the desires and, and uh, attitudes of the heart. Job says, I have never been controlled by my desires, never been in uh, management by what I lust after. He wants to be very careful to live in such a way that his, his uh, covetousness, that is a natural element, which is why we have a commandment against it, one of the, ten, the last of the Ten Commandments, of course, you shall not covet, don't desire what other people have, and don't be angry about it, don't envy for them, don't have that greed, just be content with what you have. Uh, Christian contentment is so important. He says, if any spot has stuck to my hands, that is, if he has done anything to, to not just covet something, but then to take it, being thievery or murder, he says, uh, that, that is a violence against other people. That's a disobedience to God. It's dishonoring to him. And he says, a natural consequence of that, if I'm desiring what other people have, then let what I have be taken and given to somebody else. Let me sow and another eat. Let my crops be uprooted. Very practical, very tangible judgment that Job thinks about because, again, he is in an agrarian or agricultural-based economy and is saying natural consequence. If I desire what other people have, then let what I have be taken away. He returns to the idea of uh, sexual sin, and he talks about adultery in verses 9 through 12. How is this different from uh, chapter or verse 1 here? The lust in, in, chap, in verse 1 was an inner uh, attitude, but here it's something that he had acted upon and and done something about and we think well what didn't jesus say if you if you looked at a woman with lust you've already committed adultery yes yes and job is saying i haven't done anything the beginning or the end or anything in between that's nothing part of my life i don't want anything to do with it no measure of adultery going on here he says in verse 9 if my heart has been enticed by a woman or i have lied in wait at my neighbor's doorway May my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her, for that would be lewdness. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. 
for it would be fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my produce. He gives the progression. You can read more about it in Acts, excuse me, in Proverbs chapter 7, the progression of sin and the, you know, this being enticed by woman, lied in wait at my neighbor's doorway. Uh, the, you know, he's acting upon his lust, his desire, his coveting his neighbor's wife, and, and he's, he's uh, doing things that he ought not to be doing. He is saying that, look, there is a horrible wickedness that can fall upon my life. This is moving beyond just the lustful desires that's now acting on those lustful desires. And he's willing to violate his own spouse. He's willing to violate the other person he sins with, the other person's spouse, and certainly God himself. Unless you think, well, how does it affect God? Well, do you remember in Second Samuel 11 when David sinned with Bathsheba, and then in chapter 12, Nathan confronted him, and he says, and then the, the Psalms that go, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, that go back with that, that time period of David's life, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Who's he talking to? David's talking to God. God, I sinned against you by violating my, his neighbor, but one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, one of his, his trusted soldiers, and just acted on his lust. Horrible, horrible wickedness that he went on. Job says, if I've done these things, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. He's saying, look, if I violated somebody else's wife, treated her shamefully, then let somebody do that to my own wife. The idea here is maybe two different ideas. Grinding for another is to become a slave in the, another person's home. Uh, that, that, that His wife, his dear wife, is taken from him and treated in a very shameful way. The other idea of letting others kneel down over his... Uh, um, putting her under the, the uh, sexual abuse even, most likely, is how he's referring to that, of another person. Look, if I have violated somebody else's wife, let them violate my wife. And that's just wickedness. And you think, oh, that's horrible. What are you even talking about? Because he is saying, I've never done this stuff. It is wickedness. Everybody knows it's wicked. Don't commit adultery. Don't lust after somebody else's wife. Don't be deceitful. Don't be covetous. He says that would be lewdness. It would be an iniquity punishable by judges. And here, it's really the only reference he makes to human judges uh, because one is, God is one judge, right? But he's talking about probably human judges that obviously adultery is wicked. It is a violation of uh, the covenantal companionship and the, the promise that you have to keep yourself holy unto your, your spouse. And he says, yeah, it would be punishable by judges. It would be a fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my produce. What's the deal with his vegetation again? Because he's talking about his substance, his food, and how he blesses other people. And everything, you can read again, Proverbs 7, at the end, this is the way that leads to death. This adulterous woman, horrible. It's death, it's, it's destruction for yourself and other people involved. It would be a fire that consumes. It just, how do you put out a fire? Well, when the fuel's all gone, when, or you take the heat away, or you remove oxygen, it goes out. But he says there's so much around here that it's going to consume everything and going to be gone. For what? A moment's pleasure? Job, he's never done it. He's never done this. He's never done it. He is a righteous, righteous fellow. He continues in verse 13, talking about his slaves. You think, oh, righteous men don't own slaves. Well, yes, they do, as a matter of fact. And here it is in verse 13. He says, he always was just toward his slaves. And notice how it even says it here. I'll point this out. If I have rejected the justice of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then can I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what with what will I respond to him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And the same one fashion us in the womb. So when one of his slaves has a complaint against him, what's he do? Beats him, obviously. 
how does the saying go? Beatings will continue until morale improves. What? And that's not how Job operated. No, if somebody had a complaint against him, some grievance about how things ran, maybe the safety of the thing or, or whatever, he would listen to them and bring them justice. Notice it says male or female slaves. What do you listen to the women for, Job? Because they're just the same made in, his, in God's image as, as Job is. He is very careful to give justice regardless of the, the uh, maleness or femaleness. It doesn't matter. You're my slave. You're my servant and my employee, if you don't mind the, don't mind the, uh, the um, more positive uh, expression of that relationship. Uh, they were working in his household, and he provided justice. Whenever they filed a complaint against me, now this is Job. This is the sheik. This is the, the master of the whole house. And he says, okay, you have a grievance against me. I'll listen to it. And I'll get justice. And if I have wronged you in any way, I will make amends. And that is his attitude. How, what, if I don't do that, what happens when God comes against me? Now, we studied this whole thing of masters and slaves back when we looked at, at uh, Colossians uh, 3 and, and 4, talking about slave and master relations, if you want to look back at that. But one of the things is, hey, you, you also have a master. You masters, masters, you also have a master in heaven. So be careful how you relate to those slaves of yours. Be careful that you show honor to them and and work them in a good and godly fashion. He says, when God calls me to account, with what shall I respond to him? Because Job understood God will call me to account and he will ask me, hey, how did you treat those people I entrusted to your care? We call them slaves. Job referred to them as, as slaves. But God says they're people. And Job says it here. Did not he who made me in the womb make him, the, the slave, and the same one fashioned us in the womb? God is, is making all these people for his glory. And so he, Job is very careful to give justice to them. He says in verse 16 and following, whenever there's a poor person around, I was generous to them. I didn't withhold my hand from them and say, I don't have anything, sorry. He says in verse 16, if I have held back from the held back the poor from all from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not eaten from it but from my youth he grew up with me as with the father and from the womb of my mother I guided her if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the needy had no covering if his loins have not blessed me and if he has not been warmed by the fleece of my sheep and he goes into another thing entirely he says all these things I was so careful to help people and bless them and, and whatever their situation was poor widow, orphan, uh, anyone who was lacking clothing, anyone that had no covering, then I was so careful to share my stuff with them, share my, uh, my everything I had. He says, there was no um, orphan who did not eat from my own food, my own table. I, I never did I have a, a morsel alone. He was always uh, hospitable toward other people. And you think, okay, he's maybe getting a little carried away, a little hyperbolic speaking. Really? Every Every widow you cared for, every orphan, every whatever you, you, you ministered to. Okay, I'm sure there were some exceptions, but Job says, look, whenever I had the opportunity, whenever I had the awareness of what was going on, I was uh, not holding back from the poor, whatever they needed. And I, I blessed to cause the eyes of the widow to fail means that the widow is, is uh, being deprived of something and, and is sad or mournful. And Job was even concerned about that. Wasn't I mean yes the practical needs but even the the emotional needs of the widows that he was so grateful to or careful to 
minister in the spiritual, emotional kind of ways. That I mean, Job is a good fella, and he's he's helping in the so many different practical ways. That little parenthesis, but from my youth, he grew up with me as with a father, and from the womb of my mother, I guided her. You think what in the world is he? From when he was a baby, he was caring for widows too. I don't understand that. It could be that he's talking about. He has a long lineage, his heritage, his parents also were blessing uh, widows and orphans and the needy in that way. And so he's just carrying on the the family tradition for God's glory, of course. Could be that. It's kind of hard to understand. What is he claiming there? But he he says, look, whatever I have, I have shared freely with other people. And I have been thanked if his loins have not blessed me. If I don't have the the generosity, the the praise, the honor of those people I've helped, then, you know, that's just... That's just, uh, it doesn't follow. I do get the, the blessing from other people. And people are warmed by the fleece, uh, with the fleece of my sheep. I, I, I just care for them. And he goes on from there. I, not, I haven't withhold, withheld goods from them, and I have provided justice for them. Verse 21. If I have waved my hand against the orphan because I saw my help in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For disaster from God is a dread to me, and because of his exaltedness, I can do nothing. So you wonder, what is he saying here? Remember in chapter 29, Job was very active in the gate of the city. The gate of the city is where commerce happens. It's where judgment or justice happens. Court hearings and so forth are happening in the, in the gate. And Job was one of the leading men of the city. And he, when he came in and he spoke, it's like, okay, Job, whatever Job says, we're going to do. And if he says, if he used his authority, his reputation, his power, whatever, to bring injustice, to raise my hand, or to wave my hand at a dismissal, we're not going to hear that orphan's case. Who is this orphan? What does he think he is? Get him out of here. And he sees his helpers, maybe his, his uh, bouncers, his thugs. I mean, he's a good fellow, right? But people who would, who would come to Job's aid at any moment. Whatever Job says, we're going to do it. And he says, even if I see all my people around me, I'm going to maintain justice, even for the orphan. This person who doesn't, I mean, he's left alone. He has no recourse other than coming to me. And he says, I have helped them. But he says, look, the judgment would be, let my shoulder fall off from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. That's a pretty serious judgment. Why, you just didn't show kindness or justice to the, to the orphan. He says, no, that's a serious thing. And let my, my, the strength of my arm, the, the, the ability I have to serve uh, myself and others, I, may, I lose that because of my injustice toward the orphan. And he says, for disaster from God is a dread to me, and because of his exaltedness, I can do nothing. Remember that thing about the fearing God aspect of Job's life? Yes, Job had a fear of God. And he says, God is right to judge when I am unjust or, or evil or all these wrongdoing, but I haven't done it. But I fear him, and that fear of him helps me to stay on that straight and narrow path. Again, we like to talk about fearing God and, and put it in a rather nebulous sense or in a, in a sense that doesn't mean the dreadful awe of God and the terror of standing before him. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, that, that he, we will have to stand before him with whom we will have to give an account. That's God. And he is holy and righteous and judges exactly rightly. He knows everything. We're not going to say, hey, God, you didn't consider this piece of evidence. I was hiding this from everybody until now. Now you bring it out and, oh, and God says, well, I didn't know that either. And so you're, God never is befuddled. He's never deceived. He, he knows everything. He judges rightly. And Job knew that. Disaster from God is a dread to me because of his exaltedness. I can't do anything wrong. 
I fear him. I want to honor him. And so I bring justice even for the weak, those who are the lowest members of society. He's very careful to do right by. Verses 24 and 25 talks about trusting in wealth. Job doesn't trust in wealth. But wait a minute. Job is a pretty rich guy, greatest of the sons of the East. Verse, was it 3? Chapter 1, verse 3 or 2, some, maybe verse 2, uh, talks about him being the greatest of the sons of the East. He's, he's all this stuff he has around him. But he says, verse 24, If I have put confidence in gold, find gold my trust. If I have been glad because of my wealth was, and because my hand had found so much. And then he goes on to another one. He just doesn't even complete the thought. But he says, I have all this gold. Not just the gold, but the fine gold, the really nice stuff, the, the quality gold. And if I have done with that within it, if I've put my confidence and my trust in those things, and or if I've been glad because my wealth was great, because my hand had found so much, then on and on it goes. But he says, I haven't. I haven't done that. He has all this stuff, but all that stuff doesn't have him. Not, you've heard that phrase before. It's not how much you have, it's how much has you. Uh, this The rulership of his heart was not controlled by his wealth, his gold, his silver. He didn't lament the loss of his livestock. I mean, he lamented all the, the, the change of his situation as it related to his, his relationship with God and how he was able to bless other people. But that wasn't it. And he did not regard his wealth as the thing of his life. He, well, let's see, one person said it this way. Riches pull hard at the heart of their owner to trust in them, for with their possession go power, prestige, and freedom from rot freedom from want. Riches also create a tremendous thirst for more riches. And it goes on um, talking about riches. First Timothy 6 also says, hey, contentment, godliness with contentment, that's where you need to be. Whatever you have, rich or poor. Philippians 4 also, Paul says, I've learned to abound, a lot of stuff, and to abase. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's not a volleyball or baseball term. That is talking about contentment. I can be, have much, I can have little. Blessed be the name of the Lord kind of sounds like Job, doesn't it? And so Job does not make his, his earthly goods his treasure. He makes God his treasure. And God can give or take as he sees fit. It doesn't matter to me. I have not put my trust in those things. He goes on, verse 26, and says, I don't have this idolatrous spirit. Verse 26 says, If I have looked at the sun... When it shone, or the moon going on splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss through my mouth, that too would have been iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. God had great commandments against idolatry, whether the little you know, figurines that people carved out of wood and other, other stuff, but even more specifically, don't ever bow down and worship the sun or the moon or the stars above. Don't do that. Didn't you know God created those things? Day four of creation week, God made the sun to rule the day, the moon and stars uh, to rule the night. And so, but, but you realize, wait, the sun is so powerful. How many world religions worship the sun? Maybe not present day, but in the past days, wow, that was what gave life. It gave uh, abundance. It gave drought and death and all these. I mean, the sun is so powerful and it's always there. There's nothing we can do to, oh, I want to knock the sun out of the sky and just give a little bit of brief uh, shadow or something. No, can't even do anything like that. Oh, the sun must be really powerful. It's so powerful and all of this thing. And so we should bow down to it or, as he says, throwing a, a kiss from a mouth in honor and, and respect to the, to the sun. 
Or in the moon, which goes in splendor. You think, wow, isn't that so beautiful? The moon rises and it just is there and it goes across the sky and we can look at it and, we can, and it even changes its shape during the, wow, isn't that just so tremendous? It's splendid, right? Oh, we need to worship the moon. And Job says, I've never done that. He is so careful because he says, I would have denied God. God is the creator. All stuff is his creation. He's made to honor him, to keep times, keep seasons and so forth. And Job says, no, I worship God alone. I've never been enticed to, uh, from my heart again. He focuses on the heart issue, where it comes from, the sin. And he says, I've never acted upon that thing. Never in this idolatrous way. Verse 29 and 30 talks about, I've never had a spite against my enemies. If I've been glad at the upheaval of the one who hated me or exulted when evil found him, but I've never not given over my mouth to sin by asking for his life and a curse. And breaks that thought again here. If I have rejoiced at the calamity of what is going on toward other people, God bringing judgment, yay, God bringing judgment, that there is this selfish, vengeful delight that Job might have against his enemies. We're going to see, remember how Job, his name is very much related, it's the same letters in Hebrew, kind of pronounce it differently, but Job, his name means enemy. Or it relates to the idea. The, the stem is the same. And so Job is the enemy? No, he's a good man. He, he's overcome his name, if you don't mind. But he regards his friends as his enemies. And even those who curse him and mock him and use his name as a byword, those are his enemies. And Job says, I never have desired, as he says, the upheaval of the one who hated me or exalted when evil did find him. I've never given my mouth over to sin by asking for his life in a curse. And you think, wait a minute, hasn't he? And, and hasn't David done that sometimes in the Psalms, Psalm 139, which that wonderful uh, celebration of God's work in the womb, but then it kind of ends with a statement of, you know, bringing down calamity upon the evildoers. And, and uh, yeah, you can read it in Psalm 30, 139. So what, what's going on here? It's that rejoicing attitude. Oh, good, they're getting what they deserve. Always tainted with mercy. Always we want to have a merciful attitude to other people, even those who are wicked and evil. Isn't that what Jesus did from the cross? When he's there and he's seeing people mock him, his, his, own, his, his people, his Jewish brothers and sisters mocking him, and the, the robbers on either his right and left mocking him. And what does he say? Does he, does he call upon those 12 legions of angels that he, that he could call down from his father and say, just take him out? What about when John, James and John said, should we call down angels, fire from God, from heaven, to wipe out this Samaritan town? And Jesus says, you guys, how long must I put up with you? God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of just, justice and judgment. Right now is that season of mercy, and we should have that merciful spirit as well. Job did. He says, I haven't been glad in that day of calamity for my, my enemy. I have not given my mouth over to sin by asking for his life and a curse. Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They are out of their minds. They're just motivated by greed, envy, jealousy, uh, hatred toward God, rebellion, disobedience, all these things. They don't know what they're doing. They're not acting uh, in a respectful fashion, not acting obediently. Father, forgive them. So does that, oh, so all those people were forgiven? No, the means of which Jesus brought forgiveness upon those people happened about five, well, excuse me, seven weeks later at Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel. And the same people, because it was Passover, right? Same people, seven weeks later, were there back in Jerusalem and they heard the gospel preached and 3,000 people were saved. 
That's how God mediated forgiveness to the people. Just doesn't blanket forgiveness to everybody. No, you repent, believe the gospel, and you will be saved. So again, Job did not have spite against his enemies. Verse 31 says, uh, Job did not have or was very careful to show hospitality. If the men of my tent have not said, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat? The sojourner has not traveled or lodged outside, for I've opened my doors to the traveler. He talks about this hospitality. The men of his tent, whether that's his, his slaves, whether family, whatever, whoever is attached to him, they said, there's nobody. We've looked around. There's nobody still hungry. There's so much food left over. What are we going to do with all this stuff? Nobody has gone without being satisfied with not just bread and, and olives and, and other stuff, but the meat, the substance of the meal. And nobody has, you've got enough, enough, okay. And Job is very careful to meet those needs. He also talks about the sojourner, the traveler, just somebody wandering through. Hey, come on in here, eat this stuff. You're not going to lodge outside. I'm going to open my doors. Come on in and stay with me, Job says. And so he's very careful to show that hospitality, which was a key element. You can read in Deuteronomy 10, which hasn't happened yet in Job's history, but that because Israel was were was a nation of sojourners in Egypt, therefore Israel ought to show that same hospitality or be compassionate toward those who are in, in the hard straits. He talks here in verse 33, there's only two more sins that he talks about, and then a plea. Verse 33 says, If I have covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me, and I kept silent and not, no, did not go out of doors. Is he talking about hidden sins, being a hypocrite? No, he's a man of integrity. But he says, if I've covered my transgressions like Adam, the second reference to Adam in Job's, the, the, all the speeches of Job. And you remember how Adam tried to cover his, his sin first by hiding himself in the garden, but then also hiding his nakedness, covering it with a, with a fig uh, leaf. And just, you know, what are you doing that for? And then hiding his transgressions again by blame shifting the wife that you gave me, the woman you gave me. Uh, no. I have not, Job says, I have not covered my transgressions. Wait a minute. Job, do you confess then that you are a transgressor? Of course I'm a transgressor. I've done, but I have covered my sin not by hypocrisy, not by hiding it, but by confessing it to God and offering a sacrifice. I've dealt with these things. I, I'm, Job is not claiming to be perfect. He's claiming to be one who's forgiven by God through the means that he has provided sacrifice, substitute, and faith and repentance. But he says, I've not done that. And he says, why do people do that? Why do people hide their sin? It's not because they don't think they're going to somehow hide from God. What they're concerned about, Job says, I feared the great multitude. I feared for my reputation. Oh, what would people think of me if they find out I'm really like this? And the contempt of families, if that terrified me, in other words, if he's more motivated by the fear of man than the fear of God, but he's not. No, I, didn't, I was not like that. I always confessed my sins, my transgressions, my, my rebellion against God. I've dealt with it. No, no way have I uh, done these things to the, uh, to the point that God is, is, is uh, judging me. There's something different going on here. Friends, you got, you're off base entirely. And he says, okay, he interrupts his own train of thought. He has one more sin he's going to mention. But he says, I'm just so earnest for these things. Verse 35 says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my accuser has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it, bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. So verse 35, he's interrupting his, his train of thought. 
because he's just so in earnest. All these sins that he said, I've never done that. Never. And if I have, I've confessed it to God. I want my judge to hear me, and my judge is the Almighty. Let him answer me. And he even signs his legal document. This is my, my attestation of innocence, and here it is, God. And he, he's written it out, and he's just said, oh, if somebody would answer me, hear me, and it's God, the Almighty, that must answer him. He talks about this indictment. He, the, the word is just book. And he says, the, the book which my accuser has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. In a legal context, I'll just cut to the quick, in a legal context, it can be a, a statement of um, accusation. These are the, the, uh, the charges against the person written out. It can also be, on the contrast, the, the um, acquittal, the statement of innocence. So either the accusation or the declaration of innocence it probably has the idea of the innocence because Job knows he's innocent. When God judges him, there's no other option but for Job to be exonerated, to be declared innocent. And so he says, when that statement of acquittal comes to me, I'm going to put it on my shoulder so everybody can see it. I'm going to wear it like a turban on my head, or like a crown, he says here, and so people can see because everybody knows about my shame, my suffering. It's just, I'm notorious for that, but I want my innocence to go forward to show that God does have a relationship with me because I do fear him, because I do forsake evil and have turned to him. He says, I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. He would come boldly before God and act not arrogantly, not self-righteous, but fully clothed in the righteousness which God himself gives him. And he says, this is all my life. My life is an open book before God, and he is my judge. My justice comes from him, like a prince, you know, just boldly uh, uh, coming before God. And then he comes back to this idea, last sin, verse 38 and through 40, because a righteous person's relationship to land is so important. If my land cries out against me, and its furrows weep together. If I have eaten its fruit without money, or have caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars come out instead of wheat, and stink weed instead of barley. And then the words of Job are ended. You think, boy, that's quite a way to end, isn't it, Job? Talking about stink weed instead of barley. Well, he's just saying, look, righteousness is how God, righteousness in the, the use, or how do we say it? A righteous life proves itself in how you manage the land how you care for uh, the, the produce of the field and even its workers. He says, if my land cries out, and you think, what's the land crying out? Well, it's because God is personifying the land and says, you, we don't need to become environmentalists all this way, but we do manage, we steward, that's a divine command to all creatures, or to all humans, excuse me, to, to manage this thing. And if I have mismanaged it, if I have been... been uh, uh, violating the, the land, its furrows weep together, the things which I'm, I'm just being rude and, and you know manhandling this stuff, and, and the furrows are weeping. There's nothing that they can grow. I just denuded the land. It's, just, it's horrible. Or, he says, if I've eaten its fruit without money, you think, wait a minute, Job, aren't you the one that, that you own that stuff? So, but he says, look, if I haven't paid my workers... Or if I have caused its owners to lose their lives. Wait a minute, Job, isn't this your land? Why are you getting all the... It could be that he is a tenant. He has tenant farmers working for him. Somehow he's, he's, he's talking about the, the just wages for those who work for him or, or something like that. So he's talking about the land itself plus those who care for it. He says, look, if I am so eager to just pull out as much as I can without putting back into the land or its people that manage it, let briars come out instead of wheat. 
Well, briars aren't very helpful. They're very painful. They're, they're not a, something you're going to eat or use for any kind of purpose other than burning them. But he says, let briars come out instead of wheat and stink wheat instead of barley. Wheat and barley are those produce uh, seeds, the, the, the produce that Job is seeking after because that's where you get your food and, and so forth. And, and he says, no, let it, let it be useless. Just briars and stink wheat. That, that's what we need if I am using these these uh, riches, these resources unwisely in an ungodly fashion. God judge me. Just bring natural consequences to these things. I forgot to advance these things. There you go. And so he's very careful to show his righteousness toward all these different situations, beginning in his heart, working out with other people, before God himself, knowing that he must give an account. Job says, no, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm a man of integrity. If I have committed evil, I have confessed it, I have forsaken it, I, I'm always turning away from evil, always coming for, before God, always walking uprightly. Job maintains his innocence before God to stand in the righteousness that God provides for us when we fear him and honor him. God is the one who is able to impute righteousness by grace through faith for those who turn from their sins or repent in him. And now in our age, again, Job is about 2000 BC, somewhere in there. We're 2000 years after Christ. So 4000 years separated, but the same means by which anybody comes to faith or comes to God. And that is through his grace as we respond to his grace in faith, turning away from sin, clinging to his provision. And now for us, looking at Christ, looking at him. He died in our place. He's the one that perfectly fulfilled. He was a man of integrity, no hypocrisy, always entrusting himself to God who judges righteously and laying down his life for a bunch of sinners like you and me who who don't have anywhere near the, the claim toward innocence as Job could say, even practically, but even in terms of sacrifice. We, we knowingly transgress God's law and we bring shame upon Christ and and yet Christ is a faithful Savior. He cannot deny himself. Turn to Christ. Love him. Worship him. Live in him. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your work in Job's life, and now in our own lives, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have and the confidence that we can have in that day of judgment that we can stand fully assured in the grace of God. We pray that each soul here would be trusting wholly in Jesus' name, finding a salvation that only comes by trusting in Christ, only by recognizing he's the one who died in our place. He's the one who died in my place, and I can have life in his name, the forgiveness of sins and cleansing and, and getting rid of all the wickedness that just so easily, easily and quickly and so seemingly insurmountably uh, chases after us and tempts us to do evil. Please help us to desire and be satisfied in you because you are good and right for us. You are the holy God. Please help us to grow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.